My text for this Lord's Day is from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'll read verses 7 through 9. For I would that all men were even as I myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner and another after that. I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I, but if they cannot contain, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. What is the role of parents in preparing their children for marriage? You know, the answer to that question has significantly shifted in the last 100 years. Before 1900, one could safely assume that he would hear that it is primarily the parent's role to prepare children for marriage. However, after the year 1900 or thereabouts, attitudes began to swing more and more in the direction that it is primarily the children's role to prepare himself or herself for marriage. Whereas before 1900, the parents played a very significant role in supervising and chaperoning a young couple and not permitting them to socialize in private settings. After 1900, parents increasingly began to let young couples oversee and attend themselves without direct parental supervision. Dear ones, we ought not to view this as a sociological shift from an overprotective system of parental control, or some might call it parental abuse, to a liberating system of children's rightful control over their own lives. But rather, we ought to view the shift and the change that has occurred. We ought to look at it for what it really is. A moral shift, not a sociological shift. A moral shift away from a scriptural system of loving oversight by parents to a cultural system of lustful supervision by children over themselves. I want you to see this Lord's Day and the next Lord's Day that when we as parents abdicate and surrender our rightful place to lovingly prepare our children for marriage and shift that responsibility upon the shoulders of children, And to do so especially while they are under our own roof and authority. We have, in effect, as parents, violated the fifth commandment. You say, well, how can we violate the fifth commandment? The fifth commandment says, honor your father and your mother. Well, you see, it not only commands duties with regard to children... But there are also in that commandment implied duties on the part of parents to children as well. 
Listen to a portion of the larger catechism in this regard. Question 130 concerning the fifth commandment. And I'm going to substitute the word parents for the word superiors. That's in the catechism question. And substitute the word children for the word inferiors. So as to make this question so that you understand how it applies to the situation that we're now addressing. The question would then read, what are the sins of parents? The answer, in part, the sins of parents are careless, exposing, or leaving our children to wrong, temptation, and danger. To carelessly expose our children physically and morally to them. Dear ones, I cannot think of a system more susceptible to exposing our children to temptation, sin, and danger than the modern dating scene. Consider the effects of modern dating. One million teen pregnancies each year in the U.S. alone. Date rapes. Sexually uh, transmitted diseases. Countless broken hearts from all the breaking up that goes on. Bitter rivalry and jealousy. Emotional scars and regrets. And even at times, teen murders and suicides. And be assured, dear ones, that professing Christian families are not immune from these devastating consequences. The question that should come to our minds, however, would be at least this. Where were the fathers while their children were led to and exposed to such dreadful temptations, sins, and dangers? Well, one thing for sure, it's not to say that all fathers who permit their children to date care nothing about their children. But one thing we can say for sure, that when those awful things happened, the father was not overseeing as he should have overseen his, his child. For if he had been there, if he had been exercising oversight as I believe the scripture calls him to do, the children would not have been placed in such a situation in the first place. I would submit to you, dear ones, that dating does not prepare children for the lifelong covenant of marriage, but rather dating prepares children for broken relationships, broken engagements, and broken marriages, because that's what they're used to doing in dating. Beginning one, breaking off another, beginning another, breaking off another because they don't have their needs met in that particular relationship, they jump to the next one. See, the Lord Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 17, Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And I would ask you, when we evaluate the rotten fruit that comes from dating. 
We are led to the conclusion that the tree of dating is rotten to its very roots. How could it be otherwise? How could the fruit that comes from that be otherwise? How could the tree be good and such wicked, corrupt, perverse fruit? Well, what is the biblical alternative to this child-supervised dating? Well, we would submit, and we hope to look more in detail at this next Lord's Day, but we would submit that the alternative to this is parent-supervised courtship. Those of you who have young children have the advantage by God's grace of being able to begin while your children are still quite young. Many of us who are already grown didn't have those advantages. But you can make changes by God's grace in your family so that your children do not have to go through some of the experiences, perhaps, that you had to experience. What a blessing to know that God is in the work of reforming, redeeming families. That what happened to us does not have to continue in the lives of our children. That God's grace is sufficient and powerful to change and to alter even the mistakes and sins of our past. From our text this Lord's Day, we shall answer the following questions. Simply two questions that we'll focus on. For whom is marriage? And secondly, for what purpose is marriage? And next Lord's Day, we'll focus our attention on the question, by whom is the relationship to be supervised before marriage? And so the first question, for whom is marriage? As we look at this text in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul answers certain questions that were posed to him by members of the Corinthian congregation concerning issues like a single life versus a married life, concerning separation, divorce, and remarriage, and concerning the proper supervision of parents over their children prior to marriage. Is marriage for everyone? Well, certainly the scripture says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, that it's honorable among all. All various persons in various walks of life may be married. The clergy may be married as well as the congregation, the members of the congregation. Christians as well as non-Christians may be married. It's honorable among all. But that's not the question that I'm specifically asking. Is marriage for everyone in particular, specifically? No, not necessarily so. For as we read from our text... In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 6 and following, the Apostle Paul makes clear that he would have it as his desire that all would be like him. 
All men were even as he was. That is, that all men were single and celibate. He has a particular reason in mind so that they may be able to devote more of their time, more of their financial resources to the kingdom of Christ. But even though that's his desire, he realizes from the text that that is not possible. Because he realizes that to remain celibate is a gift which God bestows upon particular individuals. The gift of celibacy. He says, again, I say therefore to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But with this qualification... But if they cannot contain, let them marry. Thus, we find that certainly it is not sinful to marry. And we will look at this particular matter here, first of all, in this first question. This gift of continency or celibacy is really the ability to live in contentment and peace as a single person. Now, we must distinguish between a temporary celibacy and a permanent celibacy. On the one hand, Christians, by means of God's providence, may temporarily be called upon to exercise a celibate life free of physical intimacy in marriage. Temporarily so. In fact, that may happen to all of us at some time or another for extended periods of time. For example, prior to marriage, certainly all of us must remain celibate, temporarily at least, prior to marriage. Or after the death of a spouse, one must remain celibate until he or she is remarried. Or after a separation from a spouse, one must remain celibate until there is reconciliation with that spouse. Or after a lawful divorce from a spouse, one must remain celibate until there is uh, uh, such a time as a lawful remarriage. And even at times in the midst of marriage, husbands may be called to various degrees of self-restraint from physical intimacy due to illness, uncleanness, a lawful war, or necessary travel. So there is a general grace of continency and self-restraint needed in the life of all Christians. But it is temporary. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. However, moving on to consider the gift of celibacy, which is a more permanent type of celibacy, there is also this specific grace or gift. 
in which a Christian receives from God a, a permanent ability to live in a single state with contentment and peace so as to devote more and more of his or her time to the kingdom of Christ. Jesus said in Matthew 19.12, There be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. A permanent celibacy. Understand that the primary reason for the gift of permanent celibacy in the life of a Christian is not so that he can travel or she can travel to all the places that they wanted to go to. It's not so as to lavish upon oneself the pleasures of this life. It's not to show one's disdain for either men or women. It's not to run and hide from certain fears about married life. Those are not the reasons, according to the Word of God, for remaining celibate. But to the contrary, the primary reason for the gift of permanent celibacy in the life of a Christian is to be able to devote more time to specific work in Christ's kingdom. For example, as a minister, a missionary, a pastor, or in some field of diaconal service, perhaps, one who specifically works to help the poor, one who works with those who have uh, very serious diseases like leprosy or AIDS or those types of diseases, or one who may establish a home for unwed mothers, may see this as such an important calling and work in Christ's kingdom that she just doesn't have time to be married. This takes up her time. Those are lawful reasons that the Lord has given to remain single. Not simply because they don't want to be married, but because God has given them the desire to serve Him in a more full-time capacity in, in a particular area of ministry or diaconal service. Well, the question arises, how does one know whether he or she has the gift of permanent celibacy? Well, by simply evaluating one's own desires for companionship and intimacy in marriage and for children and grandchildren to raise to the glory of God by considering those types of issues. As long as one can honestly live in contentment and peace without marriage, without parenthood, in the service of Christ, one can assume that God has given to him or her the gift of celibacy. However, just because one has such a gift, he or she ought not to take a further step which has been the sin of Rome, to make a vow to God to be perpetually celibate. Such a vow is indeed immoral because for one thing, it presumes the divine attribute of omniscience on the part of the one taking the vow. One may not intend to ever marry, but in God's providence, Mr. Wright or Miss, Miss Wright may come along and one's, 
wholesome and lawful desires for marriage may be aroused. But what does he do or what does she do? They've taken a vow to remain celibate their whole life. Well, you see, dear ones, vows to God should always be concerning revealed duties we owe to God. And since marriage is not unlawful, but is rather the ordinary duty God has given to most people, one should not make a vow to be perpetually celibate. For example, to, to vow to remain celibate until God grants a godly husband or a godly wife is a lawful vow. To make the necessary qualifications in such a vow is perfectly legitimate. But the unqualified vow to remain perpetually celibate is actually a tempting of God since we take the divine prerogative of pretending to know God's secret will upon ourselves and pretend to have grace to be perpetually celibate when such grace has not been promised or received. Well, you ask, what should one do who has taken such an unlawful vow? Well, he should renounce it, first of all. He should renounce it because it is, in and of itself, unbiblical. He should repent of having made the vow in the first place. And he should make all the appropriate qualifications necessary to live in agreement and according to God's word in this whole area. Listen to the words of the Westminster Confession of Faith in this regard in chapter 22, section 7. No man may vow to do anything forbidden in the word of God or what would hinder any duty therein commanded or which is not in his own power and for the performance of which he hath no promise or ability from God. In which respects monastical vows of perpetual single life, professed poverty, and regular obedience are so far from being degrees of higher perfection that they are superstitious and sinful snares in which no Christian may entangle himself. If, however, dear ones, a Christian can honestly truthfully say that he or she desires in good time to marry and raise children to the glory of God, the special gift of permanent celibacy does not then evidence itself in that person's life. What Paul makes absolutely clear from verses 6 through 9 is that it is good for a Christian to remain single. To remain single again with that qualification to the glory of God, to the use within Christ's church and ministry. That's wonderful. That's a gift that God gives. But if that gift has not been given by God, it is good and lawful for one then to marry to the glory of God and to raise a family to the glory of God. And that's what the Apostle says, 1 Corinthians 7, 9. But if they cannot contain, let them marry. And then in verse 28, the first part, 
But and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. And before we move on, I would simply submit to you that one cannot argue that celibacy nor marriage is a more or less sanctified state in which to live. Neither marriage nor the single life is more sanctified in and of itself, more holy in and of itself. It simply depends upon the gift and the calling of God in each individual's life. What has God called you to do? Do it to the glory of the Lord. Now, in regard to the raising of our children, the matters that I've just discussed are extremely important. How you prepare your children for marriage in regard to the things I've just mentioned are extremely significant. These must be kept in mind by all parents as they teach and train their children who are yet under the roof. On the one hand, for parents to require or pressure a child toward an unqualified celibacy, a child who has no desire to remain single, this is wrong. He doesn't have the gift of celibacy. To require, therefore, celibacy is sinful, is wrong on the parent's part, no matter how well-intentioned the child might or the parent might be. The parent might say, I want you to take care of me for the rest of your life. Therefore, you cannot marry. Those types of unqualified demands parents ought not to make. This is no different, dear ones, than what the Romish church requires of her priests, an unqualified celibacy. And I'm afraid it will, in many cases, either lead to disobedience and division, where the child will rebel and perhaps eventually elope, or lead to various forms of fornication, because the child cannot contain himself or herself. On the other hand, for parents to require or pressure a child toward courtship, engagement, or marriage, a child who has no desire in that direction, but is content to remain single, is equally wrong, is equally a violation of God's Word, and may in fact be working directly against the gift of God that has been given to that child and the will of God for that child's life, no matter how well-intentioned the parents may be. Parents, we must not communicate to our children by our words or by our gestures at all that to have no desire presently to be married is somehow weird or unnatural. You see, that's the Protestant error to the opposite extreme of Rome's error. 
that everybody must be married. That it's unnatural not to be married. God does call some people to a life of celibacy. And we ought not to automatically assume that our children will desire and will have that gift to be married. We ought to listen to them. We ought to help them evaluate all of these kinds of areas and decisions as a part of their preparation while we're training and teaching them in the things of God. Where is God leading them? See, in this latter case, that kind of pressure could have as well disastrous results in leading children into uh, marriages of mere convenience in order to please parents, which usually end up in divorce anyway, or leading them to unnatural sexual behavior because they're thought weird because they don't want to get married. Something must be wrong with you. That's sinful in our parts. Rather, dear ones, we must direct their desires towards some specific work in the kingdom of Christ and assure even the children, our children who are not interested in married, becoming married, we must assure them that God has something for them to do. God will use them and bless them in His kingdom. And we can't allow our desires for grandchildren even to intervene in the life of one of our children who has a gift of celibacy. Whether our children marry or not, what is most important is that they trust the Lord Jesus Christ alone for their eternal salvation. That they lean upon Christ all the time. Not trusting in their own thoughts, their own ways. Leaning upon the arm of flesh. But they look to Christ. And that they bear the fruit of righteousness in their life. That's what's most important. And so let us encourage our children that direction as we seek to determine what gifts God has given to our children, whether to remain single or to pursue marriage. Second question from our text, for what purpose is marriage? Our confession of faith in chapter 24 Section 2 succinctly summarizes the threefold purpose of marriage in the following manner. Marriage was ordained for the mutual help of a husband and wife, for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed, and for preventing of uncleanness. Three purposes. We're going to consider those three purposes for marriage from our text. 
Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we find each of these purposes for marriage revealed. Dear parents, you ought to help your children to understand, again, in your preparation, in what you teach and train them, help them to understand the purposes for marriage so that they do not entertain some, some uh, unbiblical, unscriptural idea about marriage. And so the very first purpose is for the mutual help of husband and wife. In 1 Corinthians seven sixteen, we find these words. For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? The apostle is addressing mixed marriages. That is, where there is a believer and an unbeliever. What does the apostle say? You you Christians, get out of the marriage. Absolutely not. He says, you stay in the marriage. You be faithful to the calling which God has given to you in that marriage. Until such a time that that covenant in marriage is so flagrantly violated that the contract is terminated. And that occurs in the case of adultery and in the case of willful desertion that cannot be remedied. We'll consider that in a subsequent sermon, the whole matter of divorce and remarriage. But for the present time, apart from that, the Apostle says, stay within your marriage. Even if your spouse is a non-Christian, stay there. How do you know, Paul says, whether you may not be the, the means by which he or she comes to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? You see, the point that is being made there is that marriage is for the mutual benefit of the husband and wife. Because that's simply one small slice, a very important slice within that kind of a marriage. That you could be the means by which Christ brings your your spouse to Him. That could be for her or for his mutual encouragement and help and comfort to bring that one to Christ. But you see, the idea of mutual help and comfort and encouragement covers many, many places and bases within a marriage. So that you're working together as a team, fulfilling each one the obligations of the husband and the obligations of the wife not butting heads one against another, but working together, yoked together, moving the same direction together. And that's one of the purposes that God has ordained marriage for, is that mutual help. For when one is down, the other can lift that one up. When one goes astray by God's grace, one can draw him back or her back. 
Mutual help and companionship. Mutual help in raising a family. Mutual help in sanctification. As usual, dear ones, actions seem to speak louder than words. And so I ask you a few questions at this point. Do our children see us working together within the marriage? Within our marriage. Do they see us as working together? Or do they see us working at cross purposes one with the other? Do they hear husbands or wives tearing down one another in a shameless, critical fashion before the children? Do they hear from our lips mutual encouragement, mutual thanks and appreciation for our wife or husband? Do they see us repent for our sins when we are approached by our spouse to humbly say, yes, honey, I have sinned, please forgive me. Do they ever witness that in your life? Do they observe, dear ones, our mutual affection in kind words and in loving embraces? Where are they going to learn that if they don't see it in the home? They're just going to pick it up by osmosis? And do they hear the patience in our, in our voices, husbands, as we lovingly instruct our wives in the faith? The greatest and most significant preparation for marriage that you will ever give to your children is the example that they see lived out in your lives every day. Do they see companions, friends, and lovers? Or do they see strangers living in the same house or even perhaps enemies who seem to despise one another? See, that's not preparing our children for that purpose of marriage, which is mutual help one for the other. The second purpose stated in the the scripture, summarized by our confession of faith, is for the increase of mankind with a legitimate issue and of the church with an holy seed. In 1 Corinthians 7.14, It says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. That simply means not that they're saved, simply an unbeliever is saved simply by being married to a believer. But it's saying that that unbelieving husband or wife has the privilege and the opportunity to see and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that one who is in a completely non-Christian marriage does not have. And so there is a kind of setting apart, sanctification, to hear, to see the gospel of Christ on a daily basis. But the passage continues, the verse continues. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. You see, having 
one believing parent within the marriage. The Lord says that that child is federally holy, representatively holy in that believing parent. And the Lord views, therefore, that child of a believing parent in a way different than he views the children of non-Christian parents. Because that child, again, has the privilege, has the opportunity to see the gospel, to hear the gospel, to be taught by that believing parent the things of God. That child has the privilege of receiving even, according to God's word, the sign and seal of baptism. And so the Lord says that that child is one of his, calls that child his own. And you see, this is one of the purposes for marriage, is to bring forth a godly, holy seed to the Lord, to raise Christian children to the glory of God. Yes, even non-Christian marriages, God says one of the purposes is to bring forth a legitimate, a lawful issue. But it, especially in the home of Christians, it is the purpose to bring forth not simply children, but to bring forth a holy seed to the Lord God. And so... We must train and teach our children this purpose for marriage as well. To be ever so careful that we teach them not only is marriage for the mutual benefit and health of a husband and wife in many areas, but it's also so as to bring forth a holy seed and children to the glory of God. Because this is the primary way and means by which God saves his people. It's through Christian families. Now, there are certainly many exceptions, but that's generally the way that God has ordained it, covenantally, from parent to child. And so, our view of children and what we communicate to our children must certainly be not one that children are an inconvenience in our lives. That children are an interruption that children are an intrusion into our marriage. For the Lord says, no, they're none of the above. If we put an answer to any of those, we fail the test. The answer is, they are a blessing from God. They are an inheritance which the Lord Himself bestows upon His people. You know, dear ones, it is not our choice once we have entered into the estate of marriage to decide how many children or how many blessings we should have or when we should have them. We'll talk about this in a subsequent sermon as well. But let me say, those matters rest with the Lord God Himself. The giving of children 
And the taking away of children is God's decision, is God's right, is God's prerogative alone. And we must not presume to play the role of God by taking his right from him. And so, as your children grow, let them know, as you prepare them for marriage, let them know that your desire for them if it is, in fact, their calling to be married, let them know that you desire a multitude of grandchildren. You want to be blessed with so many grandchildren that you wouldn't be able to fit them all in your house at the same time. You want and desire those children in your family. But most of all, dear ones, teach your children the importance of their preparation for marriage themselves to be the right kind of person who will bring forth a godly seed, but also the importance, therefore, of marrying the right person who together, both of you, will be bringing forth a godly seed. Because, dear ones, even within our own congregation, whether here or in other locations, we know the effects of having a non-Christian in the family and a Christian. We know the turmoil. We know the effects of that. And it is very, very difficult. We need to uphold these dear brothers and sisters in Christ and pray for the unbelieving spouse that God would bring them in His mercy and grace to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's certainly God who does save our children. It is God alone who can save. But let's not simply skip over the means that God generally uses to bring about salvation faithful Christian parents the third and final purpose for marriage which we should teach our children if we would prepare them aright for marriage is that marriage is for preventing of uncleanness or fornication And though this is a very sensitive issue, and I'm not going to go into detail about this issue, it is a very significant and important reason for marriage. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 and 9, the Apostle says, Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband in verse 9 but if they cannot contain that is remain single be content be peace let them marry for it is better to marry than to burn to burn with lust in one's heart it is better to marry than to be in that situation where one is continually fighting and struggling 
and as it were seeming to lose the battle in that area in their life. Not that marriage completely takes care of all those types of temptations. We should continue to struggle, not see marriage as simply the panacea, the solution, the remedy to that particular area in our life. If we do not deal with it while we're single, if we do not seek to overcome it, if we do not continue to strive to be faithful to the Lord while we're single, we just kind of throw it to the wind and let our desires go wherever they will. We will not do so once we're married. There must be that evident uh, endeavor on our part to be faithful even while unmarried, if we would be faithful while we are married. To prevent fornication of every kind, God, according to His Word, has established marriage. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is honorable in, in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Beloved, physical intimacy in marriage is pure and even desirable. We must teach our children that as they're able to understand those things. To desire its lawful fulfillment in marriage is lawful and good. And for that reason, the Apostle Paul admonishes those who are married likewise to fulfill this important purpose for marriage. When he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence, and likewise also the wife unto the husband. He's speaking of physical intimacy, due benevolence. What is due to the husband and to the wife? In verse 4, The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. Defraud ye not the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. This is an obligation that comes with marriage. It is good in marriage. However, I would say this. In rendering this due benevolence in marriage, one to the other. It should always be expressed in love, gentleness, and respect for one another. Never in selfishness, rudeness, harshness, or immodesty. For such are sins, not only against our spouse, but against God. Parents, don't make the discussion of this issue in your family a taboo. Fathers, don't run from 
your responsibility in this area and expect your wife to take care of all of those questions. Go talk to your mother. That's not the way to deal with this particular issue. You see, children need both their mother and their father's perspective on these things. These are ever so important. Your children are going to learn sooner or later about the subject of physical intimacy. The only question is, who will teach them? Will it be some perverse friends down the street? Or will they learn from caring, loving parents about this important purpose for marriage? And as I close this Lord's Day, I want to encourage the single parents in our congregation. I want to encourage those of you who perhaps were not raised in a Christian home and did not have the benefits of this of these truths of God's grace through parents teaching and training according to the word of God and preparing you for marriage. And so as a result, you've made many, many mistakes in your marriage. Dear ones, I started the series off last Lord's Day by saying that the only difference between a Christian marriage and a non-Christian marriage is that the Christian marriage Though there are sinners that, that live in that marriage, there is hope because there is Jesus Christ living and abiding within them. It's not because they fail. It's not because they cease to sin. But it's because they have a Savior who not only redeems people's lives, but redeems marriages. He not only sanctifies individual lives, but He sanctifies marriages. By His grace. That's what separates a Christian marriage from a non-Christian marriage. Is that Jesus Christ lives there. However weak we may be and frail we may be, Jesus Christ lives there. And I want to encourage... You dear ones, that it's not too late. Whatever happened to you in the past or recently, it's not too late to set things in the right course, in the right direction in these areas. Do not underestimate the grace and the power of God to transform and change people's life to change your marriage. For there is nothing impossible to God. Where is your hope today, dear ones? Is your hope in that other individual that he or she must change? Or is your hope in the Lord? The Lord God Almighty. 
First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight tells us even when we feel very, very frustrated about all of our efforts to be faithful. The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. One of the very, very bright spots in the New Testament was a young man by the name of Timothy who lived in a home where there was an unbelieving Greek and a believing Jewish mother. Do not underestimate how God can use your efforts if you're simply faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn to Him at this time, dear ones. Turn not to the arm of flesh. Put your trust in Christ. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise Thee this day that where sin and failure and weakness and frailty abounded, grace did much more abound. We thank Thee, our God, that Thou art a God who supplies all of our needs according to Thy riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We praise Thee, our Father, that Thou dost delight to take even those situations that seem to be hopeless and to fill them full of hope. Thou dost take the barren woman and make her a mother of children. Thou dost take the poor and the outcast and bring them into the palace of kings. O Lord our God, with Thee nothing is impossible and we pray that thou would encourage thy people this day to turn to Christ who is a sufficient savior who is a sufficient prophet priest and king in thee is all our hope and confidence O Lord our God Amen this Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 450 